Well, it is a great uh, blessing to be with you here, and uh, after a welcome like that, I, I think that's what that was meant to be. Um, it's, it's, uh, I feel especially uh, happy to be here. Uh, it's great to be uh, seeing several uh, new faces, as well as faces that I haven't met before. Uh, I have been here um, on a number of occasions, usually one of our flying visits uh, over from the States, but I'm especially glad to be able to open the word to you uh, this evening. And uh, as you see from uh, the little flyers that Mark put out and hopefully the handouts you have there, uh, I'd like us to think together this weekend about three Christian challenges. Uh, Three challenges that I think uh, all of us here uh, can confess we have uh, faced from time to time. If you uh, haven't, Uh, then you will. And so uh, store away God's Word in the storehouse of your mind for future use. Um, This weekend we want to consider uh, the three Christian challenges of doubt, distraction, and doggedness. Uh, In other words, we want to think about the challenge to believe Jesus despite the onslaught of doubt. Uh, We want to consider the challenge to have a single-minded focus on Jesus despite all of the distractions that we face in this busy world. And then thirdly, uh, on Sunday morning, God willing, the challenge to persevere, to doggedly keep on, to keep on keeping on, and particularly to keep on praying to God uh, despite the discouragements that are in our way. We're going to look at each of these challenges through the eyes of men and women who encountered Jesus in the Gospels. And the first person we're going to think about Uh, is John the Baptist. So uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. And let us remember that what we are reading is the Word of God. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Let's bow our heads and ask God to bless uh, this reading from his word. Our Father, we thank you that the words we have read are not the words of man. They are the words of God. They are the word of the living Christ who speaks them to us this evening. And Lord, as we have come to this place for uh, fellowship, we have come also for fellowship and communion with you. And it's our prayer, O God, that you would help us, O Lord, to hear your word, uh, to not sit in judgment upon your word, but to let your word uh, sit in judgment upon us, O God, and and to probe our hearts, uh, to search out the places that you want us to change and want us to become more like Jesus. Help us, O God, we pray, to, uh, to give ear to your word. Give us attentiveness, O God, and we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first message is entitled The Doubting Believer. And of course, that title is uh, in itself really uh, an oxymoron. It's, it's a contradiction uh, in terms. How can you be a believer uh, and yet doubt? Uh, one whose life is defined 
uh, by his or her faith is, by definition, a believer. Uh, That's a common title for Christians throughout the New Testament. Uh, One who believes in Christ is a Christian, a believer. Uh, For example, Acts 5 verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.12, be an example to the believers in word and in conduct. 2 Corinthians 6.15, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? You, you get the idea. It's a very common title. You get your concordance out and you'll find over and over again, Christians are by definition believers. Believers in Christ. Justified by faith, by our belief in Christ. Uh, indeed, sanctified by faith. Uh, we live by faith, not by sight, Paul says. And yet, though we know these things, no doubt, isn't it true that there are seasons in our Christian lives when we'd have to say that they're not particularly uh, uh, showing forth that faith, showing forth that belief as they should? We find our faith very often seriously attacked. Uh, And since faith is that primary grace uh, by which we uh, are justified uh, and then continue to exercise day by day to become more like Christ, it's our faith that I believe the devil is most interested in undermining and attacking in different ways. We might say that the devil uh, is a master in the art of doubt. And he finds a very willing ally, uh, does he not, in our our own weaknesses uh, as Christians. How often we take our eyes uh, off of Jesus and onto ourselves or the world with all of its enticements and disappointments. And thus uh, Satan finds fertile soil uh, for doubt to grow. Well, this evening I want us to consider this Christian challenge of, of doubt, this paradox of the doubting believer from Matthew 11, 2 to 6. Uh, This section uh, really records the response of people to Jesus. Matthew's been uh, talking a little bit about how Jesus went throughout Galilee, uh, performing miracles, teaching the good news of the kingdom, which is just to say that God's rule is being brought to earth through a new king, Jesus Christ. Uh, But these chapters 11 to 14 talk about the response of people to this uh, message of Christ. And Matthew, interestingly, begins his list of responses with someone whose response to Jesus should perhaps have been obvious. Uh, Someone whose response to Jesus we might perhaps have predicted with some measure of confidence. Uh, And it's John the Baptist. And yet even this giant of the faith, the king's herald no less, was apparently struggling with doubt. In this episode, John the Baptist is a doubting believer. And I think he's an example to us of what is an all too common experience that may afflict the life of even the most mature Christian, the struggle with doubt. We're going to open this passage this evening, as you'll see from your handout under two headings. We want to think about the believer and his doubts, and we want to think, uh, more importantly, about Jesus and your doubts. First of all, then, the believer and uh, his doubts, and we're looking at John the Baptist here as our case study. And I want us to think, first of all, about John's predicament. 
What's the situation that John finds himself in here that would have led him to this crisis of faith? Well, if you have your Bible open, look with me again at verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing. We know from back in chapter 4 verse 12 that King Herod had thrown John the Baptist in prison. Uh, We read in John 14, 3 and 4 why. Here's what it says there. Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So here's John, the the public preacher, and he's been condemning the moral wickedness of the ruler of his region. Uh, He'd borne testimony against sin in high places, and he fell afoul of the wicked establishment of the Herods. He had dared to rebuke Herod the Tetrarch from his pulpit for this incestuous marriage to his half-brother's wife. And because of that, he had been arrested and he had been thrown into a dungeon. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that he was imprisoned in the lonely Machaerus fortress out in the desert. It's still there today. You can see it. And it's it's, it's a a horrible place. Um, Very dry, um, horrible, horrible place. Uh, That's where he was put. And we'll see why that's significant in a moment. But I want you to think for a moment about John and his his predicament. Here's a a courageous, faithful servant of Christ, suffering for righteousness' sake. And, And he's seemingly completely at the mercy of this maniac, Herod, who was wicked, but yet was also weak. It's interesting, again, in Matthew 14, verse 5, on the one hand we read, although Herod wanted to kill John, He was afraid of the people because they thought him to be a prophet. And yet, on the other hand, in Mark's gospel, we read, So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him, and he liked to listen to him preach. So here's this this fickle ruler. He he can't have his cake and eat it. He he wants John dead, and yet he kind of likes to hear hear him preach. And he's got this awful wife who wants his head in a plate, literally, and she's going to get away in the end, as, as we know. Uh, she's going to have John beheaded at the behest of uh, her daughter Salome. Now, why am I telling you all this, uh, this uh, sob story about uh, John the Baptist and the hard time he was going through? I, I want you to grasp that John's predicament is truly desperate, humanly speaking. Here is a Christian in a grip of wicked men. John used to freely roam the desert, preaching Christ, and now he's imprisoned in the desert, and he's facing an almost certain death. The future is deeply uncertain. Only the fickleness of a madman is holding off the seeming inevitable. He's in the depths. He's in prison. John could have sung the words of the psalm we sang at the beginning, Psalm 31, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. 
And the psalm goes on, we didn't sing these words, but it says, I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side, while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. That's John's predicament. And so perhaps more understandably now we come to the second point, John's doubts. John's doubt, it's clear that the turmoil of John's external circumstances are a reflection of the turmoil he felt on the inside, in his soul. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Those words should knock you flat. Those should be the last words you would ever expect to hear from someone of the spiritual stature as John the Baptist. And if they don't knock you flat, maybe it's because we need to recall exactly who this man is. Later in the chapter in verse 10, Jesus says, This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Or take John 1, 29 to 34. John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist was the herald of Jesus the King. His whole mission in life was to proclaim Christ's identity. We might say that John the Baptist was the embodiment of all the Old Testament prophets whose voice declared Jesus of Nazareth is the one who was to come. But here's John in his prison cell. What does he say? Are you the one? Are you the one that was to come? Or are we to to look for someone else? What on earth has happened to John? Well, we read in verse 2 that John heard in prison what Christ was doing. Maybe a lot of commentators surmise that what John heard about Jesus' ministry perhaps didn't quite square with what he had imagined Jesus would have done. Maybe he thought Jesus would be perhaps a more dramatic Messiah in his ministry, eradicating evil and injustice in Israel. After all, hadn't John declared that Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire? And yet, here was he, the Messiah's messenger, on death row. I think it's quite likely that this mixture of disappointed expectations and then the the painful fact of his being in prison at the hands of the king and his wife, John is just like Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah, who Jesus says was his Old Testament forerunner. If you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah also had this sort of very dramatic ministry out in the desert preaching. 
against a wicked king and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel, out in the same desert, the eastern desert. And Elijah, too, fell into a great depression. Elijah, read about this in 1 Kings 19, dealing with deep questions about his own identity, his own ministry. Why had God not intervened to prevent some of the wickedness that was going on in his day? It's exactly the same thing here with the second Elijah, John the Baptist. So there is a summary of, of, of this person we're looking at tonight. John and his, his predicament, John and his doubts. But how does this come down to you and me? What about your doubts? What about your doubts? I wonder if you ever felt like you're in a prison. Maybe some of you have been in prison. But spiritually, emotionally, feel trapped. Not perhaps under sentence of death, but certainly under intense disappointment. Deep stress in your life. Great uncertainty hanging over you. The Apostle Paul described the feeling this way in 2 Corinthians 1.8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of our trouble which came to us when we were in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. Have you ever felt in your heart like you were under the sentence of death? Just crushing pressure. Doubts and depression are not uncommon in the Christian life. If you're a doubting believer this evening, uh, then I'm here to tell you that you're in very good company. Of John, Jesus later says in verse 11, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So my friends, if one such as John the Baptist can have severe doubts... Is it any wonder if you or I will have doubts as well? This does not mean that it's not a serious condition, but it does mean that it's not a strange condition. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. It is a common Christian challenge. One of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, says, Though Satan can never rob a believer of his crown, Yet such is his malice and envy that he will leave no stone unturned, no means unattempted to rob them of their comfort and peace, to cause them to spend their days in sorrow and mourning, in sighing and complaining, in doubting and questioning. He's right, isn't he? Satan loves to undermine our faith and to put doubts and questions in our minds. Now, maybe this evening you don't have the same kinds of specific doubts that John here was dealing with, doubts about the, the person and the, the work of Christ. Maybe that's something that you've never doubted, and, and that's wonderful. Maybe it's something else in your case that robs you of your peace, some other hang-up. Maybe it's one of those little unresolved questions that you just, you just wonder about. Just, it's just a nagging question there, and it never seems to be resolve whatever it is it can easily come to dominate your life there are many common reasons for doubting god it may be the result of disappointed expectations like with john here it may be the suggestions of the devil 
might be an inadequate theological foundation or indulging personal sin, or focusing too much on your spiritual feelings instead of the spiritual truth of the Word of God, which is more authoritative than the way you feel on any given day. Or it could simply be a willful, stubborn unbelief on the face of God, in the face of God's promises. We just said that the turmoil of John's external circumstances are a reflection of the turmoil he felt in his soul. And indeed, we'd go further than that. The turmoil of John's external circumstances no doubt contributed to the turmoil that he felt in his soul. Why does the believer have doubts? Often it has to do with difficult providences that God and his fatherly wisdom has brought into your life some crisis comes into your life it doesn't have to be as serious as john the baptist but like john the baptist you you lose some of your liberty in some way you're you're oppressed by others you feel cut off from the lord you find yourself as it were in that far off land in the desert that dry place you perhaps suddenly have some uncertainty that looms in the future and that External uncertainty shakes your internal certainty. And you begin to wonder. You begin to question truths that maybe all your life you've held with a rock-solid certainty. Maybe truths you've preached to others, like John the Baptist. And you're questioning the fact that those questions are even there cause anxiety you become depressed cast on what's happened to you well you become a doubting believer and you know great gifts like john the baptist's may be accompanied by weak constitutions those used most by the lord are those who are usually targeted most by the enemy i'm a history teacher and it's a very interesting you read the story i like military history you read the story of great battles, epic battles. Uh, the strategy is always to try to target the leader. Archers would always train. Uh, their key target had to be the, uh, the, the commander, the one who's leading the army. Because then they can scatter the troops. They can create confusion. And that's why Satan often will target Christian leaders, some of the finest of which have struggled with seasons of doubt and depression like John. You think of men like Martin Luther C.H. Spurgeon, Thomas Boston, Martin Lloyd-Jones. You may not know all these names, but the point is, often those who the Lord uses most are the ones who have struggled most with doubt. And you can take that as a compliment <laughs> if it's something that you wrestle with. But the point I want you to see here, as with John, don't think something strange is happening to you if you find yourself in this situation. So that's the believer and his doubts. But we need to focus secondly on Jesus and your doubts. Jesus and your doubts. So the problem has been stated. Now let's look at how the problem is solved. Okay, let's see how the problem is solved. Two things I want you to see here. First of all, what you should do with your doubts. And secondly, what Jesus does with your doubts. What should you do with your doubts? 
Well, again, I think John gives us a really good case study here. We see from his example that we must do three things. Three things. Here's the first one. Appeal directly to Jesus. That's the first thing. Appeal directly to Jesus. Look at verse 2. What does he do? He sent his disciples to ask Jesus. He sent his disciples. He, he couldn't go himself, obviously, right? He's in chains. But, but you get the point. He went to Jesus. He sent his disciples to ask Jesus. If you're struggling with doubt, what do you do? Ask Jesus. Ask Jesus. Do it without delay. The temptation will be to try to muddle through your doubts by yourself first and then come to Jesus. But inside the doubting believer is confusion. And let me suggest, let me suggest, let me urge you on the basis of the Word of God here, don't try to disentangle the confusion yourself. Go to Jesus in your confusion and let Him disentangle it for you. John's doubt centered on the person and work of Jesus, but he didn't allow that fact to prevent him from asking Jesus. You see, maybe you've had doubts about God, and the devil whispers in your ear, why bother trying to pray to the one you aren't even sure exists? Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. Psalm 36, 9, in his light shall we see light. Bring your doubts into the light of his presence, not the darkness of your own depressed condition, much less the confusion of the pop psychologists of this world. Go to Jesus. Appeal directly to Jesus. That in itself is an act of faith which undermines the very doubts you're struggling with. Ask Jesus. Now you may feel nothing. When you ask Jesus, it, it makes feel as if your prayer is just bouncing off the ceiling. Your faith may seem smaller than a mustard seed. It doesn't matter. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Another Puritan, Thomas Manton, advises, quote, dependence upon an unseen God. Resolute adherence to a withdrawn God is the flower and the glory of faith. When we are left to a naked faith and a naked word or promise of God, even yet then to still adhere to Him and wait upon Him for what is contradicted by my senses, this is to believe in hope against hope. You see what he's saying there? Even though the heavens seem like brass, pray anyway. Pray anyway. Appeal directly to Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Acknowledge your doubts to Jesus. Acknowledge your doubts to Jesus. Again, verses 2 and 3. He sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Can you imagine how humiliating or, or, or embarrassing perhaps for John to confess his doubts to his Lord. Are you the one who was to come? Should we expect someone else? It was the contradiction 
of all that he had so powerfully taught. It's more than just an expression of, of, of a theological difficulty. It is as much a, a confession of unbelief. And we might well ask, does the doubting believer ever have any good reason for doubting God? Of course not. Doubt is a tragic expression of the believer's frailty, of indwelling sin, of weakness, of faith. And when you doubt God, you need to get on your knees and you need to pray to God. Pray to God. Spread the matter before him in all honesty, just like John did, and wait on him for an answer. You know, John the Baptist would have to wait a long while for these messengers to return, having tracked Jesus down. He was all in Galilee, a long way from where the prison was. And then go all the way back to, to tell John. And you see, in the same way, you must acknowledge your doubt to God and say with David in Psalm 62, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. So appeal directly to Jesus. Acknowledge your doubts to Jesus. And thirdly, ask for help from others. Ask for help from others. John may be in prison literally and figuratively, but he still has close friends. Apparently his his imprisonment didn't prevent uh, his disciples coming to visit. But here's what I want you to notice behind the text. John has told these close friends about his struggles with doubt. Now, why has he done that? He's told these friends about his struggles so they can in turn relay it to Jesus on his behalf. And the point of application, of course, is that the doubting believer needs close Christian friends with whom to share these burdens, who will then intercede with Christ on their behalf. Are you struggling with the Christian challenge of doubt this evening? Who are your close friends? Members of this fellowship, other Christian friends, family, people who will pray for you, people who will take your need to Jesus, just as John's friends did. Who's carrying your struggle this evening? Whatever the struggle may be. Who's carrying it to the throne of grace? Who's telling Jesus about that for you? You know someone else who's wrestling with doubts and fears like John. Are you being a friend to them? You need to heed Paul's command in Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what you do with your doubts, friends. Appeal directly to Jesus, even though you don't feel his presence, even though you're having these serious doubts, go to him anyway. Acknowledge your doubts to Jesus. Ask for help from others. But finally and most importantly, what about Jesus? What does Jesus do with your doubts? You've brought them to him. Well, it takes us to these last verses, 4 to 6. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus also does three things. 
very briefly. Jesus directs you to Scripture. Jesus directs you to Scripture. Verse 5 here is an allusion to two texts from the Bible. Two texts specifically from the book of Isaiah. The first is Isaiah 35.4. Let me read these for you really quickly. Isaiah 35.4, this is what it says. You don't have to look it up, but you'll, you'll recognize it, okay? Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Now, now you see that you see that's what he's quoting, isn't it? Go and tell John what you see. You see all these things happening. And he's, he's quoting from the Bible. He's quoting from Isaiah 35, 4. Jesus' healing miracles, for example, were proof positive that the kingdom had come, that God had come to save his people. And of course, these miracles of Jesus uh, speak of the healing of the blindness of sin, of the paralysis of sin, of the barrenness of sin. The kingdom is a a spiritual kingdom liberating souls, not Jewish patriots. Jesus is explaining to John where he had it wrong. His expectations have been wrong. I am the Messiah. I am the one the scriptures have spoken of. John's doubts lay in his own disappointed expectations of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is telling his, his weak servant to bring his own expectations in line with the scripture. And you see, that's what we all need, isn't it? All of us, when we face doubt, we need to be brought back to the rock of Scripture. We need to get back to the Bible to conform our troubled souls to the promises that we find here and to let the certainties of the Word put to rest the uncertainties of our fickle hearts. I said there were two texts that Jesus quoted from Isaiah. The other is in Isaiah 61. Verses 1 to 3. Again, let me read just a few words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There's the quote. There's the quote that that Jesus gives to the disciples to send back to John. But Jesus expected John to know the context of that passage. You know where that passage continues? Listen to this. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair." How tenderly, how tenderly Jesus deals with this doubting believer. The preaching of the gospel to the poor in spirit should also dispel John's specific doubts. But the terms in which the prophet states these gospel tidings is also perfectly fitted to John's predicament, isn't it? Jesus suits this comforting scripture to this doubting believer perfectly. 
in the words of Isaiah, is not John the Baptist brokenhearted? Isn't he in the darkness of prison and mourning in Zion and having a spirit of despair? And Jesus takes takes him to these texts that are full of comfort and encouragement and he soothes his doubting soul with them. Friends, Jesus does the same with you and me today. He directs you to the promises of Scripture in your hour of doubt. Some of you will have read John Bunyan's famous allegory of the Christian life, The Pilgrim's Progress. In The Pilgrim's Progress, a giant despair imprisons Christian and hopeful in Doubting Castle. And they're there for weeks on end and he beats them mercilessly and he even tempts them to suicide. But finally, if you know how the story goes, Christian makes a remarkable discovery one day in the dungeon. Let me read from the, from the book. Quote, Now a little before it was day, Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool I've been, he said, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I might be walking about at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then, said Hopeful, that is good news, my brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled the key of promise out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave way, and the door of that dungeon flew open with ease. And Christian and Hopeful both came out. You see what Bunyan's telling you there? The the promises of, of this book, the promises of the Word of God are in your bosom. They're in your heart as you memorize the Scripture, as you read it and become familiar with it. And those promises are to be taken out and to be pleaded with God. How much time have you wasted in doubting castle, in doubt and despair because you haven't gone to the Scriptures? What does Jesus do with your doubts? Jesus directs you to Scripture. That's not all he does. Jesus also directs you to evidences. Evidences that will calm your fears. Jesus directs you to evidences that will calm your fears. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus goes beyond the Scriptures and he calls you to look at his providences, the things that he has done in your life. In other words, he compares his word to his works. He says, go and tell John the things you hear and see. As with John, Jesus directs us this evening not only to open our Bibles, but to open our eyes, open our ears. Stop and think what God has done for you. Look back over your life. Think about all he's done. What are the things that you hear and see? Can you not point to countless blessings from his faithful hand throughout your life? And does this not confirm the word of the promise in Scripture? Searching for evidences must always come in second place to searching the word of God. Searching for evidences comes in second place, but we should always interpret those providences of God by the word of God. But count your blessings. 
Thank God for his faithfulness to you. And say with the psalmist, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Jesus directs you to scripture. Jesus directs you to evidences. And finally, Jesus directs you to stand firm. Jesus directs you to stand firm. Verse 6 again. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus' words to John end with a beatitude. And fittingly, it calls the doubting believer back to a lively faith. The blessed man is the one who has true faith in the Christ of Scripture, not the Christ of his disappointed expectations. And, and here is, this isn't, this isn't so much a rebuke as it is a renewed command to be resolute in your faith, to stand firm, to act like men and be strong, is the way Paul puts it at the end of 1 Corinthians. And by this statement, Jesus directs each of you really to answer John's question for yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Our life in this world here and now, and the whole meaning of death, and indeed our life throughout eternity, depends entirely and solely upon our answer to this question. And what was the question again? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? See, when you think about it, John's question to Jesus is the ultimate question, isn't it? Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the Christ? Is he the Savior of the world? What's your answer to that question? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Amen. Amen. Or perhaps someone here is still looking for someone else. Jesus makes clear that true blessedness, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, or boy or girl, true blessedness, true happiness is only found by answering that question in the affirmative, by faith. Blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. A better translation is, blessed is he who is not made to stumble on account of me. The word is, is scandalizo. We get the word scandal from that. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Jesus is a scandal to you. Do you stumble over who he is? What he's done? Who he says he is? If so, let me urge you to resolve this evening to take yourself to him. Go and ask Jesus. Study his word. Study his works just as he counseled John the Baptist. And this is sound advice not only for the doubting believer but for the doubting unbeliever. I, I don't know most of you. Maybe you're not a Christian this evening. The advice still stands. <laughs> this word is for all of us here this evening. But if you are trusting him this evening, if you've not stumbled, but you're looking to Jesus with weak but resolute faith, then Jesus says to you, you are blessed. 
you are blessed in a truly happy condition, even though maybe you feel very otherwise. May we each find grace this evening to stand firm in our seasons of unbelief and discouragement and to come to Jesus and to find that our doubting, he is able to turn into blessing. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, that in him the kingdom has come and that your rule is being brought upon this world into the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. We rejoice, Lord Jesus, in you, our great King and Lord, How tenderly you bind up the wounds of your people. How gently you dealt with your servant John. And how gently you deal with us also. Lord, we confess that we have so often denied you practically. In the way we have lived, in the way we have thought and spoke. Please forgive us, O God, for the times when we have entertained the suggestions of the devil. When we have listened to the persuasive lies of the world when we've listened to those echoes of doubt in our own hearts we acknowledge O lord our need of you we pray that you would come to us this evening help us to face this christian challenge of doubt O god help us to come to you with no delay and to lay our case before you our predicament whatever it is and may we find that you are willing and ready to help in time of need open your word to us O god this weekend Bless us, O Lord, as we study it together. Bless us as we open it uh, in the quiet of our own uh, hearts, O Lord, in our own uh, room as we go home tonight and open your word. Speak to us a word in season, just as you plucked from the book of Isaiah, perfect text to speak to the heart of John. Pluck perfect texts for us this weekend, O God, and every day that we would walk with you, and that we would know that we are loved, that we would know that you are alive and powerful unable to overcome all of our doubts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.